This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Well, like most people nowadays, I do most of my banking on my phone. But this week I had to go to the branch. And I hadn't been to a branch for a while. And when I got there, I didn't find what I expected. I, I don't know about you, but I want my bank to have high ceilings. Marble columns, tiled floors, oak paneling. This is what a bank should look like. But if you go somewhere and it looks like that, nowadays you have to presume that it's maybe a restaurant or a trendy wine bar. Because banks have decided that a better look for bank would be to occupy single-story retail units and make them look like a foyer of a budget chain hotel. So this has happened to my bank and I went into the bank and there's five automatic machines and one person using them. And I barely got two steps in before I was accosted. And the staff member said to me, what are you doing today? And I told her what I was doing. And she says, oh, you need to go to the counter. Now, there used to be many counters. Now there's one counter and one staff member and five people waiting. So I wait and I wait and I wait a bit longer and then I wait a bit longer, and I finally get to the counter, and I see the lady behind the counter, and I tell her what I want to do, and she says, oh, you could have done that at one of the machines. I said, but your colleague just told me I couldn't go to the machine I was going to. I had to come and, and wait here and, and see you. And she said, um, yeah, she's just come from Bradford. She hasn't been transformed yet. <laughs> wow. Banks have changed since I was a lad, and I didn't think that was too long ago. But it was weird that this lady from Bradford was in the bank, but the bank hadn't yet got into her. She hadn't yet been transformed. This morning, I want you to imagine with me, and I want you to imagine that you're a young, green, keen leader in a big, ancient city. And this is a situation for this letter, First Timothy. And Timothy is that leader. And he's sent to this fledging Christian community. It's a new church. It's a church that's been started. And it's been started in this huge city called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, I've had the privilege of visiting twice. And it has this huge Roman-style amphitheater, a big stadium. Because that's a symbol of how impressive this city is. It's a big city. It's a cosmopolitan city. We've also got a picture of the library of Celsus. It was a place of learning. It was a place of commerce. It was a port city. It was an important city in the Greco-Roman world. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. And Timothy is sent to this big city. And in the middle of this city where people are obsessed with trade, with commerce, with status, with religion, as they worship this god, the god Artemis or Diana. And, and a city that was the center of cultic worship. And it was the center of so many things like many of our big cosmopolitan cities today. And And he's sent to that city and he has charge of a small group of just a few uh, oppressed people. The people who are the first Christian community, the first followers of the way, the first followers of Jesus here in this region, in modern day Western Turkey. Now imagine having that job. 
You see, he's got a challenge where they're in the city, but they don't want the city to get into them. They don't want the values and, of the city to get into them. And as a young leader, with all the challenges that comes with that, he doesn't have the respect of age. He doesn't have the benefit of experience. He doesn't have many resources or much standing within the community. And he receives a letter. And this letter is to him. This is a letter to help him lead and live in this big city. I imagine you're that leader. I imagine you'd be keen to get some help. You'd be keen to hear from your mentor. You'd be keen for some advice. You'd be keen for some instruction. And we're going to pick up in the middle of this letter that we've been discussing for the last five weeks. And in our Bibles, it's chapter 3 and verse 14. And this is part of the letter that Timothy receives. I need to change mic. Okay, cool. Thank you, Alex. And this is the letter that he receives. And in verse 14... The letter goes like this and says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. I want to pause there halfway through that verse. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Or in some translations it says, you will know how to behave. And we're asking, does Christianity have anything to say to this big cosmopolitan city? And does it have anything to say to our world, which is much the same, as we live in the middle of such a strong and powerful culture, where there's so much competition for our allegiance? But what do we find? Because on face value, it appears that we have the same old stick that we should expect from religion. I'm going to tell you how people should conduct themselves, how they should behave. Here we go again. Religious people, they're so obsessed with behavior. They're so obsessed with what people do. They're so obsessed with where they go. They're so obsessed with other people's sex lives. They're so obsessed with what people eat and drink. What is it with religious people? Is this all that religion has to offer? And this is a question I want to Ask this morning that what does this letter say? What does religion say? What does the Jesus way say in our cosmopolitan culture? And are we excluded or are we invited? Is that what religion is to do? It's there to exclude. You know, people should behave a certain way and there's certain people who are in and there's certain people who are out and there's certain people who measure up and certain people who don't. Is that what it's all about exclusion or an invitation. Well, let's read these verses again. Because in verse 14, it says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. You see, we, what we actually discover is a living faith. What Paul is talking about is a living faith. You see, because Paul says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you see, he knows that these instructions are better by example. They're better in person. 
It's better to demonstrate. It's better to show because this is about how we live together. This is about community. This is about something that we do. So the instruction isn't what we might expect of religion. Here's a law book. Here's a rule book. Here's a, the things you should do and the things you shouldn't do. No, he's saying, no, I want to give myself to this community because you guys live together. And how you live together is important. But if I am delayed, you need some help. You need some instruction. You need some pointers to this way of living. And this way of living is together in community. Because God's household is, verse 15 says, the church of the living God. You know, this phrase, the living God, is used 15 times in the Old Testament and 13 times in the New Testament. It's a repeated idea. And it's used partly to distinguish this God. We're talking about our God. We're not talking about the idols of the surrounding nations, but we're talking about our God in the Jewish faith and later in the Christian faith. But what they came to understand is when we talk about this living God, we are talking about a God that is alive and at work. Something where there is a dynamic where God is doing something new all of the time, where God's story is ongoing, ongoing. And what we have and what we discover, and we've been talking about this the last few weeks, is that when we read the scripture on face value, and especially a letter like Timothy, we think, wow, there's a lot of instructions. There's a lot of qualifications. There's a lot of things to measure up to. But when we actually look into it, when we actually read it and listen to it, we see at the heart of it, at the center of it, is a living God, is a dynamic. It's a living faith. It's not a dead ritual. We want in Ephesus to be a contrast to the culture around us where the, the, these disgusting practices, where people abuse, where children are brought to be prostituted to placate this God. We're not involved in this dead ritual that affects nothing. No, we live together differently in community. It's a living faith, not a dead ritual. You see, we'll see later that the writer is actually trying to guard against a form of religion that sees behavior control as the means to the end. But you see, with our faith, a living faith, there are two sides to the coin. It's right belief and right living. In theology, we call it orthodoxy, sound doctrine, and orthopraxy, sound practice. And you see, Christianity says this, you can't have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. You see, it's not only what you say you believe, but belief is belief to the point of obedience. And it's how you live. But what happens is that the truth of what you believe and the truth of how you live inform each other. And they are a dynamic. They are two sides of the same coin. Imagine a one-sided coin. It's very difficult. But this is the truth of our faith. So you see how we live and what we believe inform each other and we wrestle with them. And in some religions, the letter is the letter. And what your experience has been uh, and, and just is irrelevant. But we have a living faith where there is a dynamic between what we believe and how we live. And these things are both important because they inform each other and they shape each other. And the way of the wines, wise, it winds 
upwards. See, truth is something that has to be embodied. It's not just something that we can just look at at a piece of paper, but it's something that is demonstrated in a community. And this is what the letter says, that actually the church itself becomes the pillar and the foundation of the truth. When we think it's going to be a proposition, we think it's going to be something abstract, we think it's going to be something maybe on a website, but actually the community itself becomes the truth to the wider community because it embodies it, because this community is a holy community. You see, we are concerned with how people would conduct themselves in God's household, a sacred household. You see, if we're going to call ourselves the house of God, we've got to live like God. We need to be holy. And to be holy is a word that sometimes conjures up people who are just different. Or people who are, are maybe separate themselves from others. Or people who are a bit odd. Or It's not a word we really use, but to be holy means to be like God. It means to be separate, different, and distinct in our God-likeness. You see, we're not holy in ourselves, but God is the one who is holy. There's a distance between God and creature, but we're holy because, of our, because God is holy, because of our association, because of our relationship, because of our connection to God, and it makes us holy. And holiness, living like God, is appropriate in God's household. It's right to live according to the family way. That's how we're identified as God's people. In the household. This isn't instructions to look down on people. This isn't uh, kind of uh, to, to condemn things that they see going on in the world, but saying, no, if we're going to be God's people, let's be different. And let that be a light and a witness and a testimony to people around us. And this is how God always communicates. When God communicates truth, he shows us what it, look, what it looks like. Because we're not always that quick on the uptake, are we? And not all of us are educated. And not all of us would want to maybe uh, take on everything through reading, philosophy. But what does God do? God shows us what he is like in a way we can understand. And we are to show that in community. But God has done it ultimately. And we see that as we read on in the letter. In verse 16, it says, Beyond all question, and this is the center point of this letter, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. We're just going to keep that verse on screen for a few minutes because this is what God has done. He has shown us what he is like. He has appeared in body. Because Jesus came to show us what God is like. So we could see what it looks like in flesh and blood. We can see what it looks like in conflict. We could see what it looks like in human relationships. We could see what it looks like in challenge. We could see what it looks like in pain. We could see what it looks like in lack and in opportunity. We can see what God looks like. God communicated to us in a way that we could understand. This is the brilliance of our faith. God's communication is like his truth, should always be embodied. 
You see what we have in these verses as a developing story. And when we think, are we excluded or are we invited? We see in this story the ultimate invitation that God became human. The ultimate invitation for us to become part of who God is. I love this. This developing story. He appeared in body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This has been traditionally understood uh, to talk about the resurrection. He was seen by angels, his ascension. You see, it was Jesus' story, what Jesus did, which is at the center of who we are. And this developing story is actually what shapes our faith more than anything else. It's that we are invited into a story, that Christianity is a narrative that then continues. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. The church was formed and it ends in glory. You see, when we read these qualifications in Timothy, last week we talked about leadership. What does it take to be a leader? We don't necessarily have the same qualities and the same characteristics as Mike Ashley or Philip Green or Donald Trump. No, we actually look for different qualities in a leader. It's actually character is important because without character, there's going to be abuse of the people that you're leading. Instead of understanding that we're there to serve a community. There's a different qualification, but you see, these qualifications are not prior conditions, but actually the godliness, what is produced in us, springs from the story. It's shaped by the story. Verse 16 says, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. So what does God do? He invites us into the middle of a mystery. This is hard for us, isn't it, in the post-enlightenment world. But the fact that there's this incredible ongoing story, he invites us into it, and we participate in it. I mean, what does that mean? It means we kind of do stuff one day at a time. Like, we're involved in it. It affects our relationships, it affects our thinking, it affects how we relate to one another, it affects the decisions that we make. It's really normal, everyday stuff and our beliefs and our practices work in this ongoing dynamic. It's always challenging, it's always moving, it's never static, but there's always something that God is doing if we're listening and open to him. And this story shapes us. I mean, think about this example. Some people say so much bad has been done in the name of religion. I mean, think of the wars, think of the terrorism. And then the other person says so much good has been done in the name of religion. Think of the people that have been helped and, and, and lifted and the poor that have been served and the people that have been encouraged and their lives have been turned around and the communities that have been built and the hospitals that have been started and the children that have been taught. And... Who's right? Well, they're both right. You see, because the critique is right, because the critique carries within it a call for justice, a call for things to be set right, a call that things aren't the way they should be. And the encouragement, the the praise is, is right, because... Something is produced within people that motivates them, that stirs them, that inspires them, that keeps them going, and actually makes a difference in people's lives. They're both right. You see, because the reason they're both right is because we have this story. You see, if religion is just my word against yours, 
and that is what some religions are, then who is right just becomes an argument. And it really doesn't matter what side you're on. I mean, you can be a humanist or a Muslim. It doesn't really matter. Because if you're so stuck in your dogma, then that is the way you approach life. But in Christianity, we're not stuck in dogma. We're invited into a story. And actually, this story mitigates against that way of thinking. Why? Because it's centered on Jesus who appeared in body. So Jesus doesn't allow us to lead in a domineering way. Jesus calls us to reject violence, however that is done to people. He he was the ultimate suffering servant as Isaiah called him. So in the cross, we have a rejection of violence. We have a rejection of coercion and control that gives itself to it. But in Jesus, we also have the ultimate pouring out and demonstration of love and lifting people and serving the forgotten. So we have this total difference because at the center of it is a story. And this is what the letter wants to guard against in this context. Because in this context, they think a ritual will save you. Or they think your status will save you. Or they think the might of Rome or the learning of the Greeks will save you. But Timothy is charged to say, no, I can't give you any of those things. I can only give you a person and a story and a community. You see, because this is what is happening in Timothy... As we go in chapter 4, he goes on and says that the Spirit clearly says that in the latter time, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. This is a first century way of saying people are not our enemy. It's not us against them, but actually there's an ideology, a spirit behind things, an attitude, a, a, a concept behind things, and that is the enemy. And we need people to understand what is false and what we are demonstrating is true and a better way to live. Such teachings, verse 2, it says, come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Wow, say what you really think. They forbid people to marry. And ordered them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. It is strong language, but it's strong language against this sort of ideological purity or this idea that you can be like God through what are called ascetic practices. In other words... Just don't do stuff, and then you're like God. Don't, don't get married. Don't eat certain food. Then you'll become like God. This is what religious systems do. Arbitrary rules. In other words, somebody just make them up. They pick them out of a hat. They punish the flesh. They treat the body harshly. This is many people's conception of religion, but it is not the God we see in the life of Jesus and the work of the Spirit. Because God became human. He inhabited the body. Therefore, we can live holy in the body. We don't need to treat it harshly. And what does the Spirit do? As we read Luke and Acts, the Spirit pushes the church out to actually share and eat with those who don't eat the same things that they eat. To push through the boundaries that we've created that almost seemed picked out of a hat. Jesus said in Mark 7, nothing that enters the body makes you unclean. And 
he's really graphic about it. I mean, it's not very British and polite, but he says, look, if you eat something, it goes into your stomach and then out of your body. How is that making you unclean? Jesus says, no, it's actually what comes out of you. It's actually your attitude. It's actually your spirit. It's actually your approach. These are the things that make you unclean. And I think that many people have this idea about religion. And religion needs a rebrand. I think we need to tell a different story. I think we need to tell this story of God who affirms what he's created and actually wants to make all things new. This is a life, as verse 4 says, that is marked by thanksgiving. I mean, what if people just had the conception that, wow, those Christians, they're just so thankful. They just have that attitude and approach that they'll receive things and they'll accept things and they'll enjoy things that are good and that are healthy, just with an attitude of thankfulness, that they just get the most out of it. I love this. Instead of rejecting certain food, enjoy the food with thanksgiving. I mean, what would life look like if when it came to our meals and our eating together, we just had an attitude of thanksgiving? Isn't that where you've had some of the most fun in life, some of the most joy in life, when you've just been sat with great friends and family around the table, enjoying food? Not because it was a task before you needed to do the next thing, but with thanksgiving. I wonder if that marked our lives. Verse 6 says that if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Nourished on the truth of the faith and of the good teaching that you follow. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Yes, there's always somebody out there trying to drag you back to an arbitrary religious system. But instead, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. You see, what happens in us when we're shaped by this story, is an ongoing transformation. See, we hear here in verse 6 about diet. You'll be nourished by the truths of the faith. And verse 7 about exercise. Train yourself to be godly. And that's how the transformation happens, just as it happens in the body. Diet and exercise. In fact, the language here of train yourself is actually the Greek gymnasium language. Training. It, it emphasizes continuous action. You see, not since the days of this letter, the days of Greece, has the body been so glorified, or shall we say, worshipped. And that is our culture. That is our Instagram culture of worshipping the body, of our obsession with how we look. And that was something that was familiar. You've heard of the expression a body like a Greek god. You probably often say it to your husband. <laughs> but this was the culture they live in. They had these famous statues that we now see in museums. They were on their streets. They were outside their temples and their public buildings. And there was an obsession with the body. But here we have the instruction that, yes, there's some value to keeping yourself healthy. There's some value to that. It can make a difference in your life. But actually, if you take on a diet of truth, 
and a training in godliness. What this produces will actually benefit every aspect of your life. It will actually be a complete transformation. Transformation is a biblical word. We have the word metamorphosis that we get from the Greek. And a metamorphosis is like the caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That's what this diet and exercise produces in you. It's actually a complete transformation of your loves of the things that you worship, of the things that you give yourself to. That's what God wants wants to do in you. He wants to change the way you think, that you choose to love God from the heart. And the more you see him and the more you comprehend him, the more you want to do that. You see, it's both a gift and an action. Being given a violin does not make you a violinist just makes you the owner of a violin. You've got to practice. And you know, some days it's boring. Some days you're just practicing your scales. And the scales aren't fun to play. And the scales don't sound that brilliant, but the scales enable you when you do play and you do perform to do something beautiful, to do something transcendent, to do something that moves people, to do something that people take time out of their life just to listen to. And this is the same with the holiness that God gives us. You see, with grace, we have the opportunity to take hold of everything God's given for us. But what does he do? He works with us in a human way. Because it is not human to to coerce us, to force us, to, to mess with us, to do surgery upon us. No, a human way is to give us a gift with which we can learn. We can be trained in, we can discover, and through that we take hold of it and we possess what God has given us. We learn and we develop in a human way because God is not an abuser, God is a perfect father. God loves us and God wants to work with us. He knows who we are, he knows how he created us. So don't believe this line that somehow God does some sort of surgery or some sort of performance we, we used to have language um, like Wesley that we need better bodily organs. But now we understand, no, 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 no. Actually, God wants to give us this gift like the violin and teach us to play it. But some days it's kind of mundane, you know, because some days it looks like forgiveness. And that's not that exciting. And some days it looks like faithfulness. And we're tired and fed up. And sometimes it looks like compassion and we're selfish. But God actually wants to train us. And and some days it looks like reading the scripture, but we're quite busy. And some days it looks like spending time with a friend, but they're quite hard work. But that's how God works with us. He works with us in our humanity. The way that we as humans learn and grow and develop, we possess, we take hold of what God has given to us. You can see this here in verse 9 and 10. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is why we labor and strive. Yes, there's some labor and striving involved in this life of faith. Because we have put our hope in the living God, there it is again, who is the savior of all people and, curiously, especially of those who believe. I mean, how can you be especially saved? You're either saved or you're saved, right? I mean... A lifeguard jumps into the water and rescues two boys from drowning. Is one saved and one especially saved? Well, yes. Because, you see, one was just saved from the water. 
But the other one had an epiphany. The other one really thought he was going to die that day. And from that moment on, he lived in the light of what that lifeguard did for him. So he was especially saved. You see, one was saved and he went on about his day and he'd forgotten about it within half an hour. But the other one was so profoundly moved that they said, I have been given life again. And every single day, I'm going to work to take hold of this incredible gift. You know, you woke up this morning and you can either think, another day. Or you can think, another day. And we can be especially saved. You see, what God has done is final. It is total. Nothing needs to be added to the achievement of Jesus. Nothing can be taken away from it. Don't underestimate the length of God's arm. He's strong to save. He's made the ultimate difference. But especially, it is better to believe. Command and teach these things, verse 11 says. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. This is the last section we're going to read. And in verse 13, it says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Two sides of a coin. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, as we talked about, there's a different qualification for leadership. And it's not maybe what we would associate with leadership and our ideas of quote-unquote success. But it's an, leadership is an example. It's doing something different. There's something that marks you out in the way that you talk, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. And don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And you know, we're called to live well and to lead well. That's why we're talking about living and leading. And the call to all of us is to be that sort of example that lives well and leads well and doesn't let anyone prevent us from being that example. And today, don't let anyone look down on you because you're you're young. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your gender. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your race. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're rich or because you're poor. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your job. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your status. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your appearance. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your past mistakes. But instead, live and lead well. Be an example. Be an example. Because you see, people may choose to look down on you. You see, in the world that Timothy inhabited, leaders generally had a bit of experience. They more often than not were respected Just for being elders. And here's Timothy in a difficult situation. The culture's against him. Everything seems to be against him. There's only a small community. And he's only young, but he's challenged to not let. And you see, you can be an example if you simply don't let. You simply don't let what people have pegged you as. What they've placed you as. This is your level. This is who you are. This is where you should be. But you don't have to let them put you there. You can be an example in the way that you live. 
And every one of us is called to lead in that way, to be an example, just as a band come and join me. Because of this story, devote yourself to keep telling this story. Read the scripture, preach it, teach it, because we have to keep the story central. The story is shaping us. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. You know, when you give yourself wholly to something, everyone can see your progress. It's undeniable. When you give yourself wholly to something, could be anything, could be a hobby, could be work, could be a relationship. But when you give yourself fully to something, everybody can see the difference. And I just want to challenge us this morning to not hold back. You know, not to be one step in, not to be, well, God's the saviour of all people. No, he's the saviour especially of those who believe. Uh, not, not to be those who say, well, you know, the, the, this is okay. I, I, I've got one toe in the water. I, I, I've got, uh, you know, I'm okay with this Jesus stuff. No, give yourself wholly to it. To the God who gave himself wholly to you, who condescended himself, who humbled himself so much to actually become us, to become human so we could become God. This is the mystery of the story. You know, the rabbis used to be called living Torah. The Torah was the Jewish scriptures. Because they embodied, they showed people what the words look like in a life. And that's what we're called to be. Living examples. The word incarnate in flesh. As we show people what God is like. This holy living, this conduct, this way of being in the world and in community, is it exclusion or is it invitation? Is it actually God's generous invitation that yes, how we live matters, our decisions matter, the things we do matters, but is it an invitation to the God that came close to us, that invited us into himself by making the ultimate move, And he invites us into this ongoing story of Jesus who appeared in body and he was resurrected, ascended. And we told this story. Communities were formed. People began to believe in his name. And this truth and this brilliance of everything Jesus is began to be shown and taught around the world. And God invites us into that story because that story shapes us and that story challenges us. And that story sometimes invites us to reject things that we've learned or things that we've grown up with or things we've experienced. And it invites us to be that example. And I challenge all of us, just as Timothy had the challenge. You know what happened? We know what happened to the Roman Empire. Within a couple of hundred years, we saw the fall of Rome. We know what happened to Greek philosophy. It was lost for maybe 1,500 years. But this fledgling community became the greatest sociological movement the world had ever seen. Because people just knew that they didn't have to let their authority be taken from them. But they could live and lead well because they were shaped by this story. Why don't we all stand right now? And I just want to pray for us. And if you want to lean in this morning and say, no, I'm, I'm actually not going to hold back anymore, but I want to give myself wholly to this. Then lean in as we close our eyes and pray together. 
God, we thank you for this story. It is so incredible. God, you can't make this stuff up. We've tried many times as human beings to come up with a philosophy, a religion, an idea, a concept. And it's always been our way against theirs. It's always done violence to people. It's always abused people. God, I pray that you'd invite us more deeply into this story. To see you, Jesus. To see that what you have done is beautiful. It is perfect. So that we can be perfected. God, I pray that you would just help us to dive into the mystery of this story, God. To get lost in it. To swim in it, God. God, where there is still so much that we have to discover, that we have to reflect on, God. There's a mystery revealed and there's a mystery yet to be revealed. But God, help us in our everyday lives to give ourselves wholly to it. To understand that right belief has got to go along with right living. God, to grow in that. To take hold of what you've given us, God. And to be a holy community, God, that is different that is distinct and say something powerful to the world and is an invitation, God. It's not an exclusion. You're not like us. You don't look like us. No, it's an invitation to be part of your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.